Support for Silicon Slopes comes from Harmon's Neighborhood Grocer, where food lovers can take cooking classes to learn knife handling, wine pairing, sushi rolling, and fresh pasta preparation. Locations can be found at harmonsgrocery.com. Harmon's, your food, our passion. And now, let's podcast. Looking back and wishing you would have changed it is kind of a waste of time. Looking back and learning about how to inform your future is really helpful. Welcome to the Silicon Slopes Podcast. My name is Meg Walter. On today's show, we'll hear from Alex Dunn, Vivint Smart Home President, who joined us for a live podcast recording here at Silicon Slopes headquarters. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Meg Walter. I'm Director of Program and Marketing here at Silicon Slopes. Our Executive Director, Clint Betts, and his wife just had their fourth baby. Uh, he's usually the one doing this, but I am filling in for him today. And I am so thrilled to be joined by Alex Dunn, president of Vivint Smart Home. Thanks, Alex, for being here today. By way of introduction, I'm just going to read this quick intro that Liz brilliantly wrote. Liz wrote that? Liz wrote it. So hopefully you should believe about half of that. <laughs> okay. Since joining the company in 2006, Alex Dunn has led Vivint Smart Home to become the leading smart home services provider in North America with 1.3 million customers and revenues of 882 million. In 2012, he spearheaded the company's acquisition in the Blackstone Group for more than 2 billion, the largest tech buyout in Utah history. In 2016, he led a $100 million equity investment from Peter Till and Solomare, Solomare Capital. Vivint Smart Home is Utah's top tech employer, with more than half of its 10,000 employees working in the state. Fast Company named Vivint Smart Home one of the world's 50 most innovative companies in 2017. The company recently made the Forbes list of America's best employers for, for the second time in three years. Before joining Vivint, Alex started and ran two successful venture-backed companies and served as chief of staff and COO to Governor May Romney in Massachusetts. So, no big deal. Just a small little resume there. Tell us how you went from COO of Mitt Romney to Vivint. The truth is my time with Mitt when he was governor, first helping uh, his campaign and then when he was governor for two years, that was really kind of my departure. So before that, I had, had started two companies and gotten some venture money and in the process of doing that. And so when I was with Mitt, I didn't really expect to do that. That was not something that I had envisioned myself doing. Being with Mitt in politics? Being in or? politics was not something that I had thought about. And so I knew the family. I, I knew Tag and Matt and Josh, his three oldest sons, really well. And Tag called me one day and was like, hey, my dad's coming back from the Olympics. He's thinking about running for governor. Can you come help me for a couple of days? So I'm like, yeah, I'll come over. So there's a funny story. I went over and we had to figure out what he needed to do to get onto the ballot. And you have to get, I think it was 10,000 signatures, but you have to get them on a form, an actual piece of paper that's printed by the state. So I said, I'll go down and get them. You have to go to the Secretary of State's office to get them. So I went down there. I'm super naive. I didn't know what I was doing. I like go up to him like, hey, I need a statewide ballot signature papers and the guy's like who do you need them for and I'm like uh 
I can't, I, I don't know, I just need him. I knew I couldn't tell him. And so he's like, are you, he had a really strong Boston accent. He's like, are you here for Mick Romney? And I'm like, oh, I just need these signature papers. Like, so I got like 10 boxes. I put them in my car. I'm driving back. We were in the basement of Mitt's house and Tag calls me and he's like, what did you do? I'm like, I didn't do it. I just did what you told me to do. Go get these signature papers. He's like, the newspaper's calling me. So this guy had called the newspaper. And so I learned an important lesson in that because there was one other person involved at that point, Beth Myers, who ended up being one of Mitt's closest advisors. And I heard Tag saying on the phone, well, I didn't tell him to go do that. And so my first day in politics, I got railroaded. And that was my introduction. But anyway, I, yeah, it happened a lot after that, but I really didn't expect to be doing that. So I kind of got pulled into it Uh, when Mitt won and I told my wife it was just going to be the campaign. So I'm like, I'm just, well, initially it was supposed to be a few days. Then I'm like, well, well, this kind of sounds fun. So I'm like, I'll do the campaign. And so then after he won on election night, my wife looked at me, she's like, this isn't over, is it? And I'm like, uh, I'm going to help with the transition. So I managed the transition and then decided to stay with them for two years. And when I did, I told them, I said, I'll kind of take it in two year stints. And so I was with them two years. And so then it was deciding, do I want to stay with them? I know it's going down kind of the presidential path and that would be pretty cool. Or do I want to get back into to business? And I made a hard decision to go back to kind of what I had been doing before. Having been with him, I actually, instead of starting a business, I wanted to buy one. And so I started looking for companies. I had some people who had said that they would fund a deal if I could find one. And that's actually when I came across Apex. And then one thing led to another. I helped put together that initial buyout from Goldman, Peterson, and Jupiter Partners with Apex. Great. Thank you. Sorry, that was such a long answer. I'll answer much faster on the other question. The more you talk, the less I talk. So please. You have some major competitors in this market. You have Amazon, you have Google, you have Comcast in the smart home space. What has made Vivint so successful? Look, one of the ways I look at it is they actually have to compete with us, which people laugh about, but is partially true. If we were competing with Amazon on e-commerce or we were competing with Google on search, it would be very difficult. I don't know probably fail too. But the truth is, is that smart home is a much different business. It really requires a lot of skills and competencies that are not really inherent in an e-commerce company or a search company. And so you've got hardware, you've got software, you've got installation, service, a long-lived kind of relationship with the customer. You've got to be in their home. And so I think we've been successful because We've created kind of an industry with smart home and smart home services that that is actually our competency. That's what we're good at. And so you see companies like Amazon, um, like Google, who are formidable competitors, but they're having to learn and build their companies in ways that they're not currently constructed. There's a space there for us to be successful. And who knows, they may get really good at all the things they need to get good at. I think it's going to take them time. And while they're doing that, we're going to continue to grow. The other thing I would say is, is that typically in tech, you have a much more of a winner take all mentality and business models where 
the cost of an incremental customer to a social media company or a search or an e-commerce company is nothing. To add one more customer costs them nothing. In smart home, to add an incremental customer costs as much as it does to add the previous one and the next one. You don't get a ton of scale. And so because of that, we believe that there's an opportunity for multiple companies to have success. You're not going to wake up overnight one morning and have a company had now a billion smart home users because there's things like locks and thermostats and lights that have to be installed. They cost money, there's friction. And so because of that, we have been able to compete and we think there's actually room for more than one company to succeed for the near and medium term for sure. Great, thank you. You have been running Vivint with Todd Peterson for the last 13 years and by all accounts been doing so successfully. What makes the two of you such a strong team? What makes us a strong team? Todd is always right. (laughs) Interestingly enough, in my first company I started, I had a partner. Actually, I had served a, a Mormon mission and he was my companion. So we were friends. We were And one thing led to another, and I essentially got pushed out of that business. And so you could probably look and say the partnership kind of failed. And so partnerships are hard. I think there's a lot of benefit to them. It's not that I expect anybody to feel sorry for me, but it can be kind of lonely at the top, especially if you're by yourself, to make decisions and to have to do things that are hard, mainly because no one's going to feel sorry for you because you're at the top, and I don't expect anybody to. Having a partner alleviates that. So if there's hard things, I'm able to call Todd and kind of vent and know that I don't have to pretend with him. Sometimes it's like people want to be in a leader. They want authenticity, so you can't fake it. But they also don't want you walking around saying, I don't know what we're going to do and if this is going to work out. But those thoughts are there. They're always there. And so having a partner like Todd has allowed at least me and him to be able to have, you know, somebody to talk to that you can't really say those things to anybody else. How has it worked for us? I think it's worked mainly initially because Todd let me be his partner. So he didn't have to really let me kind of come into it. He had had the business for quite a while. And something that is maybe surprising to some people that don't know Todd is he really has, in terms of the the company and the best interest of the company at heart, he has no ego. It doesn't have to be his idea. In fact, he kind of goes the other way. We'll be in meetings and people will be saying stuff. Mostly he does this just to kind of make fun of him, but he'll be like, I I had no idea what you just said for the last two minutes. Can you kind of dumb it down to explain it to me? And so he really has no ego. And so I have taken... I've tried to take that lead and say, look, whatever is in the best interest of the company, whether I'm right or you're right, is what we're going to try and do. And so I would say I've been in a partnership that didn't work. I've now been in a partnership for the last 13 years that has worked really well. And we have complementary skills. We try to have no ego with each other. And sometimes he's right. Sometimes I'm right. We've fought actually one time that was a pretty big fight. So we just have avoided, I think, the the conflict. And we've both been focused on trying to build the company. And sometimes we disagree on what we should do to do that. But 
we know that we're both just trying to get to the same end. And so you just kind of work through it. And so it's been a really awesome partnership. I'm grateful that he let there be a partnership. For you, what has been the most exciting thing to happen at Vivint? Well, I guess it depends on what the word exciting is. There's been some exciting things that we're going to go out of business exciting. Um, Maybe good exciting. Good exciting? Because those are exciting. I mean, they're definitely memorable. There's a famous period of time in our company when I came into a meeting and we were going through some particularly difficult challenges at the time. And I came in and I was not completely engaged in the meeting. And I kind of turned my chair around and was staring out the window. And the joke was we were on the top floor and people were like, are you considering jumping out of the, the window right now? What, what's going on? And I think I kind of was, but... Um, it got really dark. Yeah. Uh, it's Look, one of my most favorite books is from Ben Horowitz. It's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And the reason I love it is because he gives voice to things that as an entrepreneur and a leader in a company, you can very rarely give voice to. You can't verbalize most of the time insecurity or weakness or doubt about what you're doing. And so you don't, you kind of keep it in and, you know, you wake up at three in the morning with cold sweats and you get through hard things. That's how you get through hard things. And I'm really optimistic, but it's hard. Building a business is hard. And so it's my favorite book because he gives voice to all the things. I was like, oh, I wasn't the only person that thought those things or felt inadequate or wasn't sure we were going to succeed. And so when you talk about exciting things, my mind actually kind of goes to some of the things that were more difficult in our business to get through, because I also am most invigorated when those things are happening, because getting through those challenges will define whether or not you're going to succeed or not. When things are good, it's easy. It's easy to be a good leader. And so when you ask like, hey, what are the most exciting things? I do think about the biggest challenges also because our most success always came after the hardest times in our company. We've had some really hard times. Like a year before we sold to Blackstone, I was like, we may go off the cliff. We had some bank covenants that we were getting very close to violating. The business was going pretty good, but if you violate a bank covenant, they take over your business. And so we were literally kind of at the edge of the cliff working that out. We got through it. And I remember thinking, I'm like, if I could just take a million bucks off the table, I'd be happy in some of the darkest times. And 12 months later, we sold the business for $2 billion. So it's like there are ups and downs. And so I appreciate that it's those times that really define you and define whether or not your business is going to be successful. So that's why looking back, they're exciting in them. I wouldn't define them as exciting. They're kind of hard. So how do you get through those hard times? I don't know how specific you want to get, but what... If someone's facing that with their own company, what can they do to get through it? What I've learned from experience is there's no question you're going to get to the other side of the problem. The question is in what position you're going to be when you get there. Sometimes in the hardest times, sometimes you just show up. It's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what we're going to do to get through what is happening right now. We have some ideas, we're heading in the right direction, we're doing everything we know how, 
but there's still a gap. I don't quite know how we're going to get from point C to point D. And you just show up and you just work. You just keep going. And I think the truth is, is that anybody who's built a business and been in it long enough and has gone through all of these things, has had those same thoughts, knowing that you aren't the only one that has it. And early on, I was like, I can't believe other people maybe have the same doubt or fear or concern that I do as an executive. But as I've gotten older, I'm like, they all do. Now I'm actually in a position where I get people who come to me and confide and are like, I'm going through this and I think it's over. And, and I kind of chuckle now because I remember people giving me advice. I remember my dad giving me advice and saying, look, it will be okay, you know. And I think, you don't know that. You're just saying that. But when you've gone through enough, you're like, it will be okay. I don't know what okay means, but it will be okay. And just keep going. Just keep fighting. Just keep pushing. And if you don't give up, and that's probably the biggest lesson, don't give up. Just keep going. And if you have enough determination, if you have an idea that has any merit, and you're focused on the right things, it will turn out okay. And you can ask any of the CEOs that you have here, I know them all, and know that they have those same experiences in their business where they just weren't sure what was going to happen. You just keep going and don't let your fear take over. And honestly, the one skill that I have learned that's helped me, I will actually embrace whatever my fear is. So if I'm afraid the bank's going to take over the business because we're going to violate a covenant, which was one, six, seven, eight years ago. And so I just went there. I said, okay, well, what if that happened? And I thought about it and I asked people, well, what happens when that happens? And I went to the edge. I looked over. I'm like, ah, it's not that bad. And so as soon as I kind of embraced that fear, it now had no power over me. And so I just was able to move forward and not have that be constantly in my head. When I came and did the buyout with Apex or Vivint, I told my wife, I said, look, the worst case scenario is I'm in my mid-30s. We had four kids at the time and we'll be living in my mom's basement. And I honestly looked at that and said, eh, could be worse. And so I embraced it. And because I was okay going to a place that I thought was the worst case scenario, then it really no longer had any power over me and I was able to move forward. What are you looking forward to most in the future? I love to create, I love to build, I love to grow. And so I'm looking forward to, for sure with Vivint, to keep doing that. We're getting big. We've kind of crossed over the billion dollar run rate in revenue mark. But last quarter we had 27% new subscriber growth. In the first quarter, I think it was 41% new growth. And so I love growing and building and creating. That's what excites me. I don't know what comes first. It's like, because that's what excites me, then that's what I want to be doing. Those are the things that I'm focused on helping Vivint do. And so it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. Thank you. To jump back a little bit, you, you were a businessman and then you were a politician of sorts and then you were a businessman again. How did that little stint in politics help prepare you for Vivint? So I worked for a politician. It made me pretty cynical, <laughs> <laughs> which is the truth. I actually think Mitt's a great leader, so he didn't necessarily, but the whole thing kind of made me cynical in running the state government of Massachusetts. How did it prepare me? I think it did help me know that was not a profession that I wanted to be in. 
I was actually pretty good at it. I figured out that, especially campaigns, I was good at. And in Massachusetts, campaigns are pretty ruthless. So you have to be willing to get into the mud and fight, which is, a, I think, a trait that I have. The problem was I didn't necessarily like who I was being good at campaigns. And so that was part of my, I think, decision to get out of it was I grew to really dislike hate probably is not too strong of a word, the people that we were running against. And part of it was because they hated us and they're trying to take you down every day. And so you kind of have to either be willing to play the game or somehow go be above it, but it's very hard to be above it. And so one of the things I think it taught me was that for sure I wanted to be more entrepreneurial. Business is what I wanted to do. The other thing is, is that I got... A lot of training around messaging, dealing with the media was a very practical skill that I learned. Dealing with crisis, those were things that I learned in politics. What you're doing is on the front page every day. And so you get really good at knowing how to manage the media, manage a message, deal with a crisis. And so I think it's been very helpful for me in those terms. Liz Tanner, who's over our communications, would probably say I'm not very good at that. So... I saw her over there shaking her head like you didn't learn very much, so probably not. Well, we could go on for a while, but we need to open up to questions. First, though, I want to talk to you about Vivint Smart Home Arena, which most Utahns know is the place where Donovan Mitchell plays. Yes. What has been the benefit of partnering with the Larry H. Miller Group? So what was the strategy for us in naming the arena? So first of all, when we got a proposal to name it, Todd and I did not really take it very seriously. Partially because we thought Blackstone would never really approve of doing that. And we just, I don't know, we didn't take it seriously. So Jeff Lyman, who was our chief marketing officer, and Todd and I were supposed to go to a proposal at the arena to have them present to us why we should name it. And in true Todd fashion, I don't usually do this, but Todd does a lot. He canceled like two minutes before we were supposed to leave. And this has actually happened a lot. When he's supposed to speak at stuff, there's like a 50% chance you're going to hear from me, which is like the worst position in the world to be in. Hey, you came to see Todd Peterson, and here I am. Sorry. like, <laughs> But that's happened a lot. But he canceled, and actually I canceled too because we had something going on, and we were not really taking this very seriously. So Jeff, our CMO, went up there. The funny thing is, is that they had just recently taken – one of our executives who was going to become, actually he's sitting right back there too, Nate Randall. So they had taken, they had, the Jazz had stolen Nate from us. And I had voiced my displeasure to them because they hadn't told me they were recruiting him. And so it ended up being Jeff being presented to by Nate. And it was like this big conference room desk. It was like a big, huge presentation with one person sitting in the audience. And it was like our former employee giving the pitch. So I thought that was kind of funny when I heard it. But Jeff came back and actually, to his credit, said, hey, I think there's actually something here that we should think about. And so Jeff then kind of put a deck together and made a pitch to us that it was really more about the fact that, one, we were becoming a bigger company in Utah. Um, employing people here is hard, um, getting harder. And that we needed to really kind of lay claim to 
Utah as being our home state, our headquarters, our at the time we had Solar City was going to move a big headquarters here and there was other people looking to kind of come I think leverage one of the channels the direct to home channel. We had a thesis around saying hey this needs to be our home turf and if someone's going to come here they need to know that they're going to have to at least in Utah that we have all our strength is here our home base our headquarters for world domination is in Utah. The thesis behind it was really more about employees and hiring in Utah, saying this is our home state and we're one of the premier companies in Utah. We then pitched it to one of the board members, David Delessandro, who had been the chairman and CEO of John Hancock. He had done a bunch of deals with the Olympics when he was with Hancock. He had done a bunch of sports sponsorships. He actually was supportive. We then went to Blackstone. They were support. Each time I was like shocked. I'm like, I can't believe they're supporting this. Then we went to Blackstone. They were supportive. And so we then put a bid in and we got it. It's been an amazing partnership for us. And it has truly accomplished what we wanted. Zions Bank does a private survey each year on business in Utah, brands in Utah. And they ask a question about Utah-based brands that people have a positive perception about. And four years ago, we weren't listed in the top 10. This last year, we were number one. It definitely has raised uh, the profile here in Utah. And then I think it's actually starting, mainly because of Donovan Mitchell, to help raise our profile nationally. Because people have now something to actually look to the Utah Jazz from outside of Utah for. So it's been an amazing partnership. They're awesome. The whole organization Gail Miller, the Larry H. Miller organization, the jazz organization are all filled with amazing people, and we couldn't be more happy with partnership. Wonderful. Let's open it up for questions, if anyone has a question. So I'm going to repeat the question because we're recording this. It was, if you had stayed on with Mitt Romney, would he have become president? No pressure answering that one. That's what my wife thinks. (laughs) The funny thing is, is that she bore the brunt of me being in politics more than anybody. And when I decided, hey, I'm going to leave Mitt and go, she was the one who was like, are you sure? Are you sure this is? And even after we got here, she's like, are you sure? Because in his first presidential campaign, I actually flew back to Boston for about two months. I helped kind of get that campaign off the ground. I would fly on Sunday night and was there till Friday night. The good thing about that for me was after doing that, I'm like, I'm positive that I do not want to be doing this. But she was like, are you sure you don't want to? And I'm like, I thought you were the one who didn't want me to do this. Why do you keep pushing me towards it? And when he lost, she was like, I think you would have won if you were there. I'm like, "Uh, that's my wife. I love her. Other questions? Yeah, right here. Yeah, so this is, I talk a lot about this to people who say, hey, what do I need to do to be successful, right? Which is a big question. But there's a principle that I think is true, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're an employee, that leads to success. And it's fairly simple. I tell people, be really good at what you're doing today, because that's what will lead to options in the future. So even if you're an employee inside an organization, Because people come and are like, hey, I want to be like you. How do I get to where you got to? And I have a simple question. I say, tell me what you're doing today. And they'll say, I'm in the call center. I'm wherever. I'll say, awesome. Tell me what your boss thinks about you. And about half the time, they're like, oh, but I don't 
you know, the call center's not really where I want to be. They're, they start giving me excuses because the answer is my boss would tell you I'm probably not a very good at what I'm doing. The other half would be like, hey, yeah, my boss would say I'm doing an awesome job. So I'd say to that person, well, then you're on the path to getting to where I got to. Doesn't happen all at once because the opportunity comes when you're good at what you do. It's pretty simple. Liz wanted me to tell this story. Scott Hardy, who's sitting over there, is our COO. We hired Scott Hardy as our VP of, what did we call it? Business analytics. I mean, that sounds like a stupid job, doesn't it? At least a stupid title. But it was important. It was analyzing a lot of the data that we have to figure out what we do. And Scott did such a good job as our VP of analytics that we put him over our inside sales group, which I don't know if you know, but that's not like a normal jump from analytics to running a sales organization. But he was so good at that that we said, we're going to give him a chance. And actually, I told him, I think there's a 50-50 chance that you're not going to be able to do everything you need to be good at this. So we gave him that job. He, in 18 months, doubled the size of that channel for us. And he did such a good job at that. We moved our COO over to Solar to become the CEO there. And we put Scott in as the COO. And it was really simple. Scott wanted more for sure, but Scott didn't come say, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. He just said, I'm going to come and be great at what you want me to do. And when he was great at that, I said, let's give him a chance at something else, bigger, better, more that we want. And when he was great at that, we said, let's have him be the COO. So in a very short period of time, he went from a job, VP of analytics wasn't exactly in the top whatever jobs in our company to one of the top three or four positions in the company. That to me is the entrepreneurial mindset. Entrepreneurial mindset is I'm going to do, I'm going to be good at what I'm doing today. And I know that that will lead to other good things. So that's what I'd say about that. Yeah. Back there. What's the number one challenge of growing here in Utah? I think if you said, what's the challenge with growing in Utah? I think it has to be probably hiring for multiple reasons. One, because the economy is doing so well here. And then two, because, you know, it's a little bit harder to recruit people from out of state. We've done a really good job at doing that. We have people from all over the country. It's getting easier for sure, at least for us. And I think part of that is because we have people that have come in, loved it, so they can talk to other people and say, hey, this is awesome. But the challenge with Utah probably is just hiring, just because the economy is doing so well. Todd was in a, I think it was the Silicon Slopes event that Todd was talking with the governor. And the governor was talking about all the companies he was recruiting. And Todd's like, I don't want you to go recruit those companies here. That's not good for us. And then the governor kind of laughed and Todd's like, no, I'm not joking. <laughs> Other questions? So new products. So the way we think about products and product development is pretty holistic in terms of we start with the problem of, hey, what is smart home? What does a smart home do? How do we deliver on that promise of what a smart home should do? And so a smart home is made up of like lots of components and then there's lots of software that has to be there to help support that. Um, in terms of hardware, what can I announce? We actually have some really cool stuff coming that's gonna extend 
the reach of your um, smart home. We haven't publicly announced it yet. So, um, but it, it, next year we are going to be selling a um, a product that kind of ties into the smart home that I think is going to be a really big success for us. Um, we just um, released a new hub um, that is much more capable uh, around video. Uh, video is definitely a huge driver um, in the smart home, um, which also means there's lots of data that the smart home is generating. So on the software side, like data analytics and video analytics are, are services and functionality that we're developing now that are going to you know, be incorporated into the system. So if you look at, you know, especially security in the context of smart home, um, in the past it was like, hey, I have a door sensor so I can tell you the door opened or shut. Today, I can tell you a door opened and shut and here's a video of who actually came in that door. Um, and and um, tomorrow it's going to be, I can tell you the door opened shut, I can show you a video of, you know, a person coming in and out and I can also tell you who that person was um, because of, you know, facial recognition, because of gait analysis, and I can tell you whether or not that's someone that's in your family. I can tell you whether or not that's someone that has actually never been in your house before. It's a stranger or someone that, that we don't recognize from a platform perspective. So that's definitely the direction things are going. And so the, on the software side, the analytics, and then on the hardware side, there's a really challenging technical problem because do you push all the analytics to the cloud? and do nothing at the edge. And if you do that, there's cost associated with pushing that data all to the cloud to do the analytics that are prohibitive. There's connectivity issues. So we have chosen the approach where we want to do most of the analytics at the edge, which is actually a really tough, challenging problem. And so the next generation cameras for us are going to be much more powerful than the current generation cameras we have that will allow us to do kind of video analytics at the edge at the camera. So you can say, hey, I'm going to stream a video stream back to the cloud. And in the cloud, the computer's there, the, the processing is going to happen in the cloud, and it'll say, hey, I recognize who that is. And then it will say, hey, that's Jeff Lyman. Then we push back down to the system, hey, that's Jeff Lyman. The problem is that you have to be constantly streaming to the cloud, which is expensive. It causes Wi-Fi problems. There's real problems with that. The challenge is, is that to do video analytics effectively requires a lot of processing if you're not intelligent about how you do it especially. Nest does all the analytics in the cloud. That means you have to stream it. We are doing where the camera is going to get that stream locally. You don't have to stream it to the cloud and it's going to say that's Jeff Lyman. The processing is actually going to happen mostly at the edge or at the camera. We have time for one more. If you have a really fun add-on product, you have to get in line behind the 100 other people that have... No, I'm just kidding. Kind of. Jeff Lyman, that guy right there, raise your hand, Jeff, is managing our product engineering group. And so he would be who you would start with. And we definitely add third-party stuff in. We are going to be doing that more and more as time goes on. Okay, last question right here. Is there anything I would have liked to have done? Yeah, there's a tons. Honestly, if you look back and there's not anything you would change, I would think you're kind of dumb because you make mistakes. You can't help it. 
And so looking back, I'd be like, oh, if I did this, this, and this, man, I would have been perfect and avoided all the problems that I've had. And so there's lots of things that I look back and would say, now, how does that help me? It helps me not make that mistake again in the future. So that's the other thing I would say is if you keep making the same mistakes, that's also kind of dumb too. It's like you should feel the pain of that mistake once and then learn from it and say, okay, in the future, I'm not doing that again. And the truth is we're still doing that. We have made some major mistakes or bets that haven't worked out how we've wanted them to work out to the tune of $100 million a couple of times. And looking back, it's like, oh, well, we shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have done that. And so the good thing is, is that as those experiences or those opportunities or things happen in the future, as they've happened, it's like, okay, I'm, I may be dumb, but I'm not going to do this twice. It definitely has helped inform my decisions moving forward. So it's like, of course, I would have changed things looking back because I've made mistakes. Looking back and wishing you would have changed it is kind of a waste of time. Looking back and learning about how to actually inform your future is really helpful. So instead of being like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. It's like, God oh, did that. That was a big one. But what did I learn? And how is that going to help change how I make decisions moving forward? That is super helpful. And you should all do that. Everybody should do that. Instead of regretting it, again, I've made some painful, big mistakes that in the time I thought I was doing everything I needed to to avoid having it be a big mistake, but it didn't. And I can tell you that those things have actually helped me avoid making those big mistakes again. Now I'm just making new mistakes. So ones I've never made before. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Let's give Alex a round of applause. I want to thank Alex Dunn for joining us for that live podcast recording. Don't forget to get your tickets to Silicon Slopes Tech Summit 2019. Go to summit.com for more details. Today's show was recorded inside the Silicon Slopes studio and produced by our good friend Dave Meekum. Thanks so much for joining us. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Slack. Millions of people in hundreds of thousands of companies rely on Slack to get their work done. For them, Slack is where all the people and tools they need to work are gathered, where ideas form, evolve, and reach fruition, where plans are proposed, documents exchanged, expenses approved, travel booked, and deals signed off, where decisions are made and consensus is reached, where the humdrum becomes the easily done. Slack, where work happens. Visit slack.com forward slash silicon slopes and sign up now to get $100 in credits toward a future upgrade.